We've been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Sunspidel coming at you once again with Don Brohan and Michael Graney. You recognize Michael and Don from the last time we've done this on economic personalism, but while we were talking last time, a lightning struck my mind, brain as, uh, what was that movie, uh, Hook, <laughs> uh, Epiphany, a lightning struck my head, and uh, they were bringing up solutions to the problems that we keep, I've been bringing up with the Klaus Schwab reset the fourth industrial revolution so i asked them hey what do you guys think about doing this as a way of solution-based ideas that they were spewing out and kind of like tackle it from that angle so i didn't send them all these books yet they'll be on the way shortly i just kid they'll have to read it by the end of the night but just as kind of like an intro because we'll do a couple we're gonna do a series on this topic for different topics because these are multi-topic levels so Based on human dignity, what is human dignity? Which one of you, Steve, want to start? Okay, I'll, I'll give it a, a quick shot. Human dignity is that quality that every human being has by virtue of being a person, having personality, which is something that's part of us, it, it's something that God gives to us. We are born with this. It makes us something that uh, is in common with other persons, other human beings. And human dignity is a quality of being worthy. And we might think of it also as that recognition that as a human being, we need to grow and develop as human beings where we have certain potentials or we're individual. We have, we're, we're not all made from a cookie cutter, uh, but we have that quality of dignity, which is both intrinsic to us, but it also needs to be recognized, acknowledged by others and supported by our social systems, our institutions. So just, uh, Father Faree, William Faree, talked about the props of personality, human personality and dignity, that things like property, for example, property rights, are what helps each of us to be able to develop to our fullest human potential, or at least always keep developing, and to be free, uh, to have power of our own so that we can engage in our interactions with other people and in society as equal human beings. Yeah, and I, I would add that, you know, where, where Don puts it in actual human terms, I get esoteric and philosophical, but the whole concept of personalism itself is inextricably linked with dignity and 
the, the nature of the human person as both an individual and a member of society, what Aristotle called political, so that your human dignity, it cannot be separated from your humanity. And what defines you as human, according at least to Aristotle and Aquinas, is your, uh, forgive me, analogously complete capacity to acquire and develop virtue. Okay, what that means is that every single human being is not, all the philosophers will attack me for this, have the same capacity to become virtuous or vicious if that's the direction you choose to go. Uh, so that in order to become virtuous as political animals, you have to exercise your rights within the common good. Of course, the real, the, the philosophically speaking, the common good is that capacity to become virtuous. But this manifests itself for us as political animals in society. That vast network of institutions within which we exercise our rights as human beings, life, liberty, private property, and acquire and develop virtue, but always within an, or not always, there are some, you can always find an exception. But as political animals within this institutional structure of the common good, so that every single human being must have his or her dignity respected by being granted as far as possible, full exercise of those natural rights to life, liberty, and private property so that you can become more fully human. So you bring up, both of you brought up private property. Now one of the classic videos from these guys starts out in about the year 2030. The first one was, you will own nothing and you will be happy for it. it. The article goes on to talk about all you'll do is everything will be rented. Uh, there was an article two days ago that mentions office buildings being basically uh, taken out to be used for housing, but not to own. It will all be rented because no one's supposed to travel anywhere because we're trying to get the net zero and it's all going to be VR. So, so we're taking the humanity into digital. Where's the, where was in economic personalism, you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but Devolving that into why is that bad? Well, I think he said the key word, private property. And we need to start by understanding what that means. That it isn't the land or the houses and the things that you own. It's the rights and uh, responsibilities that a person has with respect to the things that they own. Now, these rights include uh, most importantly, the right of control over what the thing that you own, deciding, for example, how you're, uh, whether you're gonna use a cow to milk or to eat, uh, how you use your land. But it's also from that extends the right to the fruits, the full fruits of the thing you own. So if you have an apple tree, for example, what you have in terms of private property is the right to all the apples that that tree uh, produces. If someone comes and takes away number of the apples or chops one of the branches off, they have uh, they've harmed your private property rights. 
they've taken property from you. So the difference that we have mainly in terms of these, the proposals that you're mentioning is that when someone says, well, no one will own, well, we look at ownership, it can be um, in, in terms of economic production, it can be either in terms of you own your own labor power, whether it's physical, um, mental, entrepreneurial, it's part of you, it's part of your human personality and skills that you put into the productive process. So unless you're a slave, and this is what slavery is, essentially someone has taken away the prop your property rights in your own, what your body produced, what your mind produced. We also see that you can have property in things. And this has happened, you know, as soon as the first human being took a rock and maybe chiseled it a bit so it's now a weapon, it's his weapon, okay? No one else's weapon, I made this. This is my rifle, there is none yes. like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, so no one else has the right to touch it or to use it without my permission. So when you say that people will not own, what you're saying, is a couple of things is we have um, no logical way of determining what someone has produced and what they're entitled to. So that becomes an arbitrary process, you know, external to what you would know. I know I, I can measure how much my thing produced. That is what I am entitled to. I also know that I have say so over this and no one else can control what I own. Now, when you own joint lease, such as in a corporation and you have shares, then what you have to do, it becomes more, a little more complicated because then you have to sort out, well, which portion of this, you know, what the company produced is mine. What is my share of control as an owner? And that's usually exercised in the vote, um, that for every share that you have, this isn't always true, but the, the usual method is that if you own a share, you have that much of a vote if you have, it's proportionate. So we have to be very careful about saying that no one will own um, because someone is going to end up controlling and determining who gets what. So should it be each of us or should it be someone determining that for us? Yeah. What Don points out is possibly the, the single greatest error that both socialists and capitalists and now resetters, I guess you could call them, are making. And that is, they confuse, this is uh, according to Dragon, Aristotle and Aquinas again, although if you try to drag an Aquinas big as he was, you're gonna break your back. Uh, the, it, it, this is that small error in the beginning Actually, it's a seemingly small error because it's a huge error that leads to great errors in the end. Mm -hmm. And that is to confuse the dignity of the human person with the dignity of humanity. What they're doing is they're confusing something made by God, the human person, with something made by man, the abstraction of the collective, of humanity, of the capitalist elite, of the political elite. And that's private property, or, I mean, to be strictly correct, there should be no distinction between property and private property, because only natural persons should own, either directly or through something that they have created in order, like a corporation that will own on their behalf, and they own the owner. Uh, so it, what they do is confusing reality, actuality, 
with a construct that they have made, they shift thing, life, liberty, and private property from the actual human person to the state or the collective or the capitalist elite or the local common turn or whatever you want to call it and assume that that abstraction which they themselves created is greater than themselves that God created. You mentioned collective. They don't use the C word collective, but they do use a lot of other words that sound like we're, they're turning everyone into the Borg. Uh, yeah. They also try, and uh, you bring up humanity. A lot of this is VR technology that they're trying to swedge humanity. They're basically fundamentally trying to change what human beings are. Humanity itself, taking humans away from each other, putting them into a digital virtual world. VR is big in, in these guys' ideas. Uh, meetings like we are right now, even though. I'm, we're nowhere near each other, so this makes sense. But we're talking about even like Christmas or Thanksgiving to be on here. They even uh, Grover from Sesame Street talking to kids, telling them say it's it's this is a good thing to talk to your friends through Zoom or Skype or whatever, not to play with them, but to interact via VR or internet. How's how's that destroyed the idea of humanity itself? Well, you know, it's interesting because right now we're using Zoom and it allows us to communicate with each other and with, you know, potentially millions of other people. So as a tool, it serves a particular purpose mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's helpful to us. It's a good thing. Now, there are other things, you know, you can misuse tools or you can start to use tools in a way that they weren't intended. And this kind of interaction um, doesn't allow for that face-to-face -face human close contact, which I think the pandemic and all the isolation has shown that's not natural to people. They have this desire. I mean, it's to the point where people start to get violent when they are not allowed to interact closely, to have close social contact. So we, this really brings up the question of, um, is human nature something that can just, you know, be changed? Or is there something so intrinsic to us that we start to react in certain ways when we don't have it? And we would say, for example, that private property is natural to people. This sense that uh, I know my father likes to use the example of if a child has a favorite toy and another child comes and takes the toy away, the reaction is, it's mine, <laughs> you know? And animals even have that sense of territory. So this is something that was put into us. And when you deny that, um, it, it really tends to bring out not the good side of us, as we can see. So the question is, in the 21st century, we have very advanced tools, including virtual reality, which can be very useful, for example, for training surgeons. So you don't have to do it on live human beings. That's a tool. So this is the point we would make with personalism is we have to distinguish between each of us as human beings, people, persons, and things. Okay, and what do we use the things for? How do we use them? 
I mean, you could say, for example, uh, our, our pet dog, for example, and many people would consider their pet dog a member of the family, okay? And that is, in a sense, and I guess I'm getting into it now in an area that will just provoke lots of argumentation, <laughs> but how we interrelate with this non-human, can we just um, neglect it, put it out in the cold where it will freeze? I mean, in this sense, with another um, living being, we have to be concerned about the other thing because it's we have a responsibility. In terms of humanly created tools, we have a responsibility not to use those tools to harm other people, to take away their property rights, or to cause them physical, mental, whatever kind of harm, or to or to impede them from participating in the common good. So, you know, that that's what I would say in terms of tools, we see the importance of them and human beings are tool makers. Um, what makes us more advanced, I would say, than animals who create tools, because birds do and chimpanzees do, is that we create institutions and we can keep changing and perfecting our institutions always with this conscious intent for the institution to benefit each person affected. So that's, you know, there's that conscious awareness of you as a person, you as a person, me as a person. And our development as human beings, hopefully if we have this environment and our tools structured, right, and we use them correctly, each of us will become more virtuous, will become better. I would only add that, you know, the whole idea that you can replace personal interaction with virtual reality is essentially the same mistake that people make when they say that you can replace you know, redistribution with productive activity, replace productive activity with redistribution. Yes, it may be necessary as an expedient in the short term, but it is not a solution. I mean, distribution on the basis of need may be essential. And, you know, these days, I don't see how we're going to get around it for quite a while. But unless we work to put in a, uh, into place a system whereby people can be productive and take care of themselves through their own efforts, we're going to be in as bad a shape as if we try to replace our personal interactions face to face with this virtual reality. I mean, right now, uh, don't be offended, but you're not as real to me right now in this situation as you would be if we were in the same room. Right. Talk together. Right. No, no, exactly. Yeah, you have to have a, you have to be in the same room. You have to. It, it's it's kind of like uh, back in the day when you just talk to somebody on the phone. <laughs> you rather talk. I hated talking on the phone. I'd rather be with you in the room or playing ball or something than just hey, how you doing? And sitting there and you're hearing a voice. Now we're hearing a voice and seeing the person, and we still don't smell them or see how they're you know the whole body reaction or. Uh, you know, what interacting in the same, how would you say, room, space. Yeah, then, leave off the smell, though. I could, I... <laughs> Everyone, Michael does shower. Uh, he, he, he at least tells me that. Uh, so <laughs> how would you characterize capitalism, socialism, and I guess the Great Reset in terms of human dignity? Uh, you hear the key phrases from uh, Schwab and them at the Fourth Industrial Revolution of 
or they want to make a fairer economy, a more fair job industry, more equal. It seems like every time someone says fair or equal, it doesn't mean we're bringing everybody up, but it brings everybody down. Is that am I am I on target on that? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a good way of characterizing it. There's nothing with, wrong with the word fair. You probably need to define it. And we talk in terms of justice as a set of principles uh, so that people can participate, can receive their, their just reward for what they contribute, and then also have the ability to correct your situation, your laws or your institutions if they're not allowing for that fair, um, that uh, balance in terms of participation and distribution. Uh, but a lot of times fair people mainly think of this as a sensation, just a general feeling that, okay, um, this, this, this person was in dire straits. Now this person was given enough so that they're surviving and that feels, has that feeling of fairness. Um, but we need really, if we're going to change systems, and I think that's one of the points of the Great Reset, which I think we should take into account, is that we've had a lot of these systems, both in socialism and capitalism, where you see power and ownership concentrated in fewer and fewer people. In both system, one is using the mechanism of the state very blatantly in socialism and and communism, which I would say is the the extreme that socialism will tend to, and, and under many circumstances, that's what it's going to become. Um, capitalism is more of a, a sense that, you know, each of us, it's up to each of us to do what we can to work hard. And that's what determines how successful we are as, as human beings. Um, and so what happens then is under the capitalist system, you end up having to use the government in many different ways. Um, it can be in a way that you're controlling prices, you're controlling the ability to compete, and, that, and this all can only take place if the government allows it. And so where you find, again, this concentration of power and ownership, you find the ability to manipulate the, the state, the government. We can see that right now. So these, you know, ultra billionaires, in a sense, you, you would want to look at, well, what laws enabled them to become so wealthy while everyone else is either staying at the same level or even moving down in terms of the economic scale? So that, that I think that we would see in terms of human dignity, neither of those systems is really focused on the human person. And they're very materialistic. I mean, that in a sense is a person's value in, in capitalism is really how much do you earn? Are you successful economically? Um, how much can you accumulate? That that becomes the purpose of life is to produce and consume and keep accumulating capital. Okay, so that isn't exactly looking towards how you become more virtuous. Some people will, will take that and, and they'll pursue virtue, but that as a system is not the point of the system. And with socialism, it starts out, I think, with that notion of equality, because you see 
I think people react with the sense of injustice when they see such great disparities. I mean, it's just people just starving out in the streets and other people living on their own private islands, not even having to go through customs, by the way. That's another book you may have read. Um, um, uh, was it Capital Without Borders? You know, so we have there, we uh, both systems are looking at how people can be controlled externally rather than how people can develop their virtue to live with each other, to prosper with each other. So it, it really is, I'd say personalism is the only system that we've come across, which is really focused on the human person. And so in that economics is is, in, is urgent, it's part of our animal needs. We must take care of our economic needs. The question though, is that is that where it stops with economics? And we would say economic personalism is really just this, the system and structure to help you get to the higher levels of hu human existence and that human activity and human development. Yeah, I would add that from, from my perspective, uh, I see that capitalism, socialism, and this great reset, or reset, as far as I can tell, they all make the same mistake with their, their fundamental principle seems to be the end justifies the means. Mm -hmm. The socialists look at horrible conditions and say, we must do anything possible to make certain that this doesn't happen, that everyone gets what he or she needs. This was the basic principle of Henri de Saint-Simon, you know, the founder and prophet of the new Christianity, which was socialism. Uh, and then if you ever heard uh, an interview with Milton Friedman, what did he always do to justify his whole greed is good mantra or how great capitalism is? He would instantly launch into a tirade about, do you know any other system that has raised so many people out of poverty, that has created so much wealth, that has done this, that, and the other thing? But what about the damage done to individuals and families? Not everyone shares in this wealth. The socialists are right. Everyone should be able to get, you know, their fair share. Where they did, where they, where I disagree with the socialists is that how they determine what is fair and how you go about getting it. I mean, if I produce something and have the opportunity and means to become productive then I make something to trade for something and I can get my fair share of what I produce as well as participate in what others produce by giving them of what I produce. The, uh, the whole Great Reset seems to be doing, trying to do what both socialism and capitalism do. You know, get the benefits of capitalism, but give a more intensive socialist redistribution of them. But what about the ordinary person? What about you and me? How do we participate in this other than as vague general recipients of someone else's largesse on whom we're dependent? Yeah. I mean, whether we're dependent on the state directly or on the capitalist elite that controls the state, I mean, what's the difference? I still don't have full access to my human dignity and the ability to become more fully human because someone else is telling me what I need and how I need it. Yeah, if you go to the WEF.org website, World Economic Forum website, you see the, all their partners. 
It is the who's who of literally anybody as a corporation. Joe's Barbecue. So I got tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean Lego, Lego, little Lego, Legos on it. Yeah, Obviously, well, you see Walmart. They destroy our feet at night. Now they're trying to take over the rest of our lives. It, the, uh, hey, that's that's part of me. Uh, everything's awesome. The Lego Movie. Uh, follow your orders. <laughs> um, where was I going with that? <laughs> um, yeah, you look at that list. Yeah, the list. And what do they call him, Steve? Well, no, 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 not, not even before we get to that one. Oh, okay. But you look at that, and you, what we're talking about with the little guy, you don't see Bob's Barbecue on there or the little mom and pop down the street. that They can't be open during these times. But Walmart, Amazon, these other guys are making triple the income, which goes into because they're wanting to destroy your idea of driving to mom and pops to hang out with your the, the owners having a good neighborhood, that tight-knit, think-locally mindset to having drones bring you the stuff or disconnecting the humanity again to other people in a business relation. So what do you call that when the, the powers that be or shouldn't be are literally looking like they're destroying certain businesses but propping up these other ones? Well, I would say that it's a violation of what we would call uh, the four pillars of a just market economy. And the, the right to become an owner and have access to the means to become an owner, that, that is critical and that affects whether these other three pillars can function. Um, one of those is uh, the free and open marketplace for determining just prices just wages and just profits. And so where you have a system that uh, the marketplace starts shrinking, that the, the whales are destroying the little minnows rather than having a, a healthy ecosystem where there's a place for both, that there is no um, perfect size of a corporation. It is optimal and the only way you can determine that is in uh, a market free marketplace where you have a lot of customers with power to make that decision, you also have free entry of businesses to come into the marketplace. And you don't have, for example, a few giant corporations able to buy up their competitors just to you know, reduce competition. So almost almost kind of like a Darwinian survival to fit is for businesses. Yes. And and the reason Darwinism. Yeah, yeah. And that only can occur, this monopolization can only occur if the government allows it to. Because, for example, we have antitrust laws, but are they really being exercised? Is the government really um, in, uh, making sure that these are operating? Um, the other problem is that where you don't have equal access, equal opportunity, to have access to the means to go into business and to be able to produce and sell, um, then you're also at a, a disadvantage. And that's, I think, the, the big problem is, you know, when you use the word equality in terms of an economic system, uh, economic personalism doesn't define it in terms of equality of results because that immediately requires some external force is gonna make sure that, okay, these people have too much 
we're going to equalize it and spread it out over here. When you do that, you're denying human dignity, you're, den you're violating private property, which is the second of the pillars that you want to look in terms of is private property, number one, is it being upheld? And you can see, you know, certainly in the socialist system or the communist system, they come right out, Mark said, you know, you can sum this all up by just saying the abolition of private property and the means of production. That's what I'm about. And I have a good reason for saying this because he saw really what was happening to most people. So he had, I think, probably good motivations. Um, what his motivations, how he used that in a solution was completely anti-human. Mm -hmm. um, so then you have private property in the capitalist system. Now, here's an interesting thing. And Mike can mention more of the historical um, aspects of this. But in this country, uh, where you had the Ford Motor Company, there was a famous uh, legal case called Ford versus Dodge and Cousins. Did I get oh, it right, Mike? It was Dodge versus Ford Motor Company. The, the Dodge versus Cousins was a couple of years uh, ago. Okay, okay. How well, dare you miscite a legal case? I know. Off yeah, of their head, you know, floggings I later. <laughs> I, I leave the history and the proper citations to Mike. I forget well, that. Which we will cover in some other video. <laughs> yes, but basically what this did was it took away the property rights of this, the small shareholders, the minority shareholders, and management, which was controlled by the majority shareholders, decided, well, we're not going to pay out dividends, which we would consider the fruits of your private property is... Um, the, the dividends uh, should be the full stream of dividends. We're going to keep it because we need to grow the company. So right there in America, under a capitalist system with one of the biggest capitalists, you had a violation of private property rights for the, the small shareholder. So well, in the first application of the, what is now called the business judgment rule, whereby the majority owner, who was Henry Ford, could say to the minority shareholders, mostly the Dodge brothers, uh, that as it stands today, if you want your dividends, your profits that you own, you have to prove that the company doesn't need them. Now, that puts the sharehold, the minority shareholders in the position of having to prove the impossible because you cannot prove a negative. How can you possibly prove that a company doesn't need to withhold those profits for future growth? I mean, you can't because you don't know the future. Yeah, you can prove they need it. You can't prove that they don't need it. <laughs> so on that topic, you bring, what, you've heard of stakeholder capitalism, basically for me, from Schwab, who's coming out with a new book on it in 2021. And the Holy Father even brings it up, even the Miss Rothschild says it at the end of a CNBC article uh, video clip of shareholder, uh, stakeholder capitalism. Uh, what is that? It seems like you're caring just about the stakeholders and to you know where with the rest of the people. Am I, is that correct? Yeah, you know, and it's it, this idea has been developing, I'd say it's maybe now 30 years I've been hearing about stakeholder, you know, uh, that the corporation should serve the interests of stakeholders, which could be uh, the community, surrounding community, it could be customers, workers, even the government is a stakeholder. So when you talk about stakeholder capitalism, I think 
what it's actually doing is it's it's a form of socialism that you've taken away the private property rights of the shareholders and you're saying someone management usually controlled by the majority shareholders will decide how the fruits of the corporation will be dispersed um and in terms of for example um out of concern for environmental uh, things uh, the, the healthy of the environment as being something that corporations should be concerned about or the uh, well-being of the community surrounding community that when the corporation shifts away from its primary function which is to produce goods and services that people want to buy you know not doing any damage to the environment they shouldn't be doing that they should pay for any damage that they do um, what happens is that you've destroyed the rights that someone has when they buy shares in that company. And rather than empowering people through ownership and giving them the means to, number one, um, be charitable to other people who are in need, uh, make that decision for themselves. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the company going around to everyone saying, here's a problem. Would you be willing to help out? rather than saying, we the company have determined that we're gonna take the dividends, we're gonna pay out to you, and we're gonna we're donate it to charity, whether you like it or not. So it really is, I'll put it this way, what it does, stakeholder capitalism, turns owners into non-owners, rather than turning non-owners into owners. And that is what economic personalism is about. And then how you do this, without having to redistribute, you know, take the savings of people who've been accumulating, take them away and then spread it around and help people become owners. Well, that's still violating the pro their property rights. Um, even for example, this notion of universal basic income. Yeah, I actually said that in my head just a second ago. So you heard me, good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it sounds so nice. You know, this is a way, and, and let me just say this. I think, at least for myself, I, I try not to judge, you know, to prejudge what people's motivations are. I mean, I can judge them by their actions and the harm they cause. Um, and I would say a lot of times harm is caused unintentionally. It's a lot of ignorance. But in terms of, the, um, let's say, someone like Andrew Yang, I think his solution is is horrible it's destructive but i think his motivations are good that he sees people suffering he sees the, the growing gap in in the economy between those who have and those who don't and it just is feeling unjust to him and to many people however you don't uh, bring justice by committing an injustice so what we look at is how you create how the system can create equal opportunities for each person to participate as a capital owner. There should be in terms of um, how you participate as a worker, there shouldn't be any barriers based on discrimination, you know, the artificial barriers. If you can contribute your labor and you can prove your worth, you know, everyone should have that kind of equal opportunity, but your labor may not be necessary anymore. So you just said the the um, truck drivers now you know what they're going to be 
I'm just feeding you through my telepathy. That's how that's how it's gonna work. This this is the whole idea. You can read my mind. We're all connected. It's silly. It's silly, and it doesn't have to be that way. Now, if those same truck drivers, they know they're gonna be automated out of their jobs. If they have a means to become shareholders in the companies that are producing this artificial intelligence and automated uh, vehicles, if they were shareholders in this. Then that you know they they could live off the, the dividends and do what they want to do. Maybe they want to become yoga instructors. I don't know, but that is you know. Yeah, Billy like, Bob doing yoga. I just don't see that. Uh, oh yeah, well you know it's it's, it's no offense to the truck drivers out there. I thought about becoming one. Uh, it's a great industry. Uh, <laughs> yoga is a hell. My uncle my uncle's a truck driver. He he did it for years. Yeah, exactly. Maybe you should do yoga also. It's good for. <laughs> yeah, Uncle Frank. If you if you want to be uh, you want to talk yeah. about it. Yeah. So, um, anyway, from, from my perspective, shareholder capitalism is a way of forcing people to be virtuous. I think stakeholder might. Yeah, stakeholder. Let's get the name. Your floggings are happening after dawns. We do this. Yeah. <laughs> it's for the, the Dodge versus Cousins. <laughs> Did you ever read The Once and Future King by T.H. White? It was made into a musical Camelot and also that kind of thing. But there's a, there's a passage in it where young Arthur thinks he has come up with the greatest idea ever and he goes to Merlin with it. And he says, I have found out a justification for war. We will invade and we will force people to become good. This is the best justification for war. And Merlin gives him, well, it, it's a family book, so he gives him heck. Basically telling him it's the worst idea in the world. What stakeholder capitalism does is go to owners and say, we are going to take your income. We are going to take what belongs to you and give it to other people because that's the right thing to do. We won't give you the option of being able to be generous and charitable. You will be forced to be. That way, everyone will be good and kind and virtuous, right? No. Everyone will become vindictive, malicious, and evil because they want to hang on to what they, they have. So by definition, within stakeholder capitalism, any owner who wants to keep the income that he or she produce is evil and not charitable and not and unjust. It, it's... Basically, what it does is flip human nature on its head. And speaking of that, in UBI, since they're trying to turn the robots on, I know I, I everyone keeps going. You got too much of a love affair, Terminator. It, it, it's Skynet here. I mean, this is Skynet, Matrix, and a couple other things all rolled up into one. Yeah, well, uh, you know how to control the Terminator? Own it. Well. John never beat Skynet. That's the thing. The whole thing, Connor never wins. Uh, Judgment Day ends up happening. And well, anyway, so the robots are supposed to take over. You, I saw this when, you know, all the AI cars when I was doing Uber, they were talking about that going on, and everybody was going, "Well, what happens to the drivers? You, go, you don't exist anymore." Or uh, McDonald's when they had these little screens when you would order. And the lady at the behind the desk would would actually tell people go order on the screen, and they would either have a there was actually some place that had robots flipping burgers, and the basically that person was there, you know I don't know what she was there they were there for, but he had to tell them that thing is taking your job, and they were just completely clueless. So with the UBI, they're you know they're how is it? You know, like you say, you see their idea, 
They're getting rid of people working, so they're going to give them an income so that they could pay for stuff. So it's a bad that they're trying to turn to a good somehow. Uh, how does that square up? It doesn't. Obviously, this is softball. With the third, was it, uh, <clears throat> with the just third wave of economic personalism in terms of human dignity. Yeah, well, I think it was answered in an article in Life magazine in the late 60s, and it was called... 1964. There you go. He's very precise. July 15th. Okay, yeah, even more so. That's the way he is. What time? What time did it come out? He's just so obnoxious that way. Was Um, it sunny or rainy? I work with him, so I can say (laughs) that. Um, But the the title of the article is, If the Machine Wants Your Job, uh, Let's Own It. And so that's really how we view technology, that it's the purpose of technology is to reduce the amount of human labor input that's needed. It's not to create more work. It's not to create make work. It is to take those repetitive, boring jobs, because I don't think people, most people love working in McDonald's, okay? Um, And then most people don't love working on uh, assembly lines or what is it the the meat packers i mean they're they're i mean it's a difficult that's a hard job so if you can own the machines that will do those jobs better and they never you know they never get sick that you they may have to be repaired but basically if you can free human beings up to do the things that they love to do and give them the the the, their own independent source of income so that they can do that and not always be wondering, well, today, you know, the guy's been handing me my check, decided he doesn't want to pay out a check. He's got tired of doing that. Okay, so suddenly, where's my income? I was expecting, you know, Andrew Yang to be giving me my check. You know, for some reason, that's not happening anymore. So it, it, this is really it's not to put us in competition with our technologies and our tools. It's to make us the master of our technology and tools to own the technology and tools, each of us, not collectively, but each of us having a a private property stake, get the income from that, use that income for activities that make us more human. And, you know, going to universities, becoming doctors becoming teachers without you know always having that economic motivation or pressure that you do these things which no machine can do as well as a human being there's no machine that can teach as well as a human teacher um well maybe some teachers they also cannot feel pity or pain and they will not stop until you are dead yes just like (laughs) the terminator exactly exactly and and actually what you're mentioning is is something which there's that mo- that um, uh, development towards artificial intelligence that is going to be able to have these human emotions and a sense of you know free will, uh-huh. and we have to decide now is the time really for hu- human beings and not just a few at the top, not just governments, but every human being needs to think about okay, this future, what is my place in the future? Am I going to be someone else's servant or their, you know, their dependent? Am I going to be, you know, someone who has measure of power and control over my own life and my own destiny? 
And in terms of the tools we create, are these tools going to enhance my opportunity, my freedom, and, and those of other people? We have to be always mindful of the other humans and persons that we live with and who are going to be born in, into society. You know, are those tools enhancing that or are they harming that? And in some cases, it's the use of those tools and who's controlling them and who's owning them. So I would say that a way that we can evaluate all these different systems in terms of human dignity and human empowerment, because if you don't have power, your dignity is always vulnerable to the, the will of someone else. So you need that. Um, and this was something that uh, the founding fathers, how they viewed property as a protective fence. It, it's a way of protecting all your other human rights. It is a right. We're talking about property rights. Those rights help you protect your life and your liberty. If you don't have property, they saw that that was always vulnerable. Um, so I, I think that the questions we should always ask when evaluating a new system, a paradigm, a set of laws, policies that come into being is who will own it, who will control it, and who will pay for it. And this is the who will pay for it is the subject of um, a, a future <laughs> conversation that we'll have because it does involve how we understand money. It sounds like them, them, us. <laughs> yeah, but when you think about it, and this is important, and I was trying to you know, think of how to word that third question because another way of saying it is where will the money come from? But really, when you ask the question, who will own it, who will control it, who will pay for it? In each case, it's who will own it, each of us. Who will control it, each of us. Who will pay for it, each of us. Now, how are we gonna do that if we don't have any money? No, we could, and, and that will re really be the topic of a, a future uh, discussion. Cause that's, you know, now getting into the actual solution and doing it in a systems way and always being at always adhering to the principles of the just third way of person, uh, economic personalism, the dignity and empowerment of the person, understanding we can participate and contribute in not only with our human labor, but through our ownership of things and tools, being aware of those three principles of economic justice. So we always have that way of looking at our structures. Is there equal access to participate and contribute? Is the dis distribution of rewards, is it determined in a fair way, not arbitrarily, but, and that's where the, the role of the free market system comes in. Um, and then is there a mechanism for correcting problems? And, is, and then the act of social justice comes into that. How each of us has a responsibility to organize, to correct our systems when they're broken. And then the four pillars we, we look at, does this uh, involve property rights for everyone equal, access to pro private property and the means to acquire it? Does it allow for free and open and non-monopolistic markets to determine just prices, wages, and profits? Does it have limited, does it limit the economic power of government within all this? And we would say that government should own nothing 
It doesn't have to. People assume that infrastructure and whatever has to be owned by a government. No, it doesn't. It can be owned in an organized way so that government is there to make sure you're not abusing others. You're adhering to contracts. But it should not own, it should play a minimal role in the economy other than to enforce contracts and you know, prevent abuses. That's a new video I want to make on it. Instead of in 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. By 2030, the government will own nothing and you will be really happy. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly right. And so what makes all this possible? We think that's the fourth pillar. And that is interesting enough. You're going to love this because I know maybe, you know, there are a lot of people who distrust the United Nations and consider it to be an evil institution. But they should go, yeah, okay. Um, and because that is a governmental institution that's doing stuff that's not empowering human beings, it tends to empower governments. But all that aside, if you go back to its founding document, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, everyone should look at that. Because I think if they can find anything that's really, that's wrong about that, you know, that's another area of discussion. But go to Article 17, and that says that every person has the right to own property individually or in association with others. And the second part of Article 17 says, no one shall have, no one shall be deprived of their property, arbitrarily deprived of their property. So those things we would say in economic personalism, no country in the world is upholding that right, Article 17. And what we bring into the mix is, it's one thing to say you have a right to have private property. It's another thing to say, well, how do you get access to the means to acquire it, to have private property rights in something? If I don't have money, how am I gonna get that thing that'll have private property rights in? So that is what we bring to the picture. It's now a very practical, uh, business-like, free market-oriented, private property-oriented way for every human being to have that equal opportunity to become a capital owner yeah. Which without pretty, taking away property from the existing owners. Which pretty much sums up the whole way in which economic personalism differs from capitalism, socialism, the Great Reset, and it's probably a good way to conclude because otherwise we run a serious danger of getting <laughs> into very technical and particular areas trying to explain, okay, how are you going to do that? And we'll do that in the future, <laughs> in future episodes. Oh, finally, do you want to say anything about what is the main difference between the four that you mentioned? Well, I think I can handle that very easily and quickly. Uh, Basically, economic personalism focuses on the human person created by God. The capitalism, socialism, and what do you, I don't even know what the, the Great Reset, which is basically capitalism and socialism, uh, as far as I'm concerned, focuses on abstractions, whether you're talking about the capitalist elite or the collective or the state or just something that people create themselves rather than on what God creates himself or I won't get into any okay. <laughs> we're, we're speaking to a good Catholic audience yeah, so right. <laughs> it's going to get into dangerous territory yeah. 
Yes, and I think what also is different is that in when we talk about human dignity, there has to be supports for human dignity. And that's what institutions and the common good are supposed to be. With that comes the question of power and that we know that power tends to corrupt and <laughs> absolute power corrupts absolutely. But we also know if we don't have our own share of power, we can't protect ourselves. So it is in making sure that power and rights start with each human being, not putting that in the government, not putting that into the collective, because those abstractions will still need someone making decisions. And so that's where the problem is, is human beings, they're fallible, they tend to, you know, acquire vices, whatever. They're not perfect, they're not God. And when they have unchecked power, they will tend to abuse it. So we are saying we have to structurally diffuse power down to the hands of every human being. Uh, very good. Michael, Don, appreciate that. Uh, again, folks, we'll continue to do a series on this. And I will be pushing them to try to make a volume two book, uh, Economic Personalism versus the GR. I'm funneling info to them regularly anymore. Uh, but anyway, guys, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much, Steve.